We move in now in this series of podcasts on United States history into number seven, which is now we get into life in this Plymouth colony. In the last podcast, we talked about some colonies as they began to settle in and what these very, very first generation of European settlers faced. We're looking more closely, however, at largely considered to be the forerunner to the modern day American, those coming from the Plymouth colony established in, in 1620. So in this podcast, we then now look at to how they were attempting to govern themselves. And that would be through one document that you, many of you may remember from grammar school social studies, certainly from American history in high school, that being the Mayflower Compact. The compact, of course, nothing more than a fancy word for agreement. So this compact signed by all adult men on November 21st, 1620, note the time. Now, when I say November 21st, your mind, if given the opportunity to think for a moment, you probably start thinking about that upcoming Thanksgiving holiday. Well, yes, and there's a reason for this not a coincidence that the Mayflower Compact is signed in what will eventually be an American holiday called Thanksgiving. The reason being is because that's largely the end of the fall harvest. While there's not a massive fall harvest that the individuals of the Plymouth Colony are, are concerned with, it's how are they going to make it through once again the following uh, late fall, winter, and early spring, when again, depending upon the location of the colony throughout the New World, they can lose anywhere from 70 to 85% of the colonists due to exposure and starvation, dehydration, etc. So it more or less is a make it or break it document that we are not going to have infighting. And that's the first thing that the Mayflower Compact, as I demonstrate to my students, really was. It was a ceasefire agreement. It was an agreement that we are going to come together to get along for the purpose of survival. It was a contract or an agreement on governing the colony. All adult men signed that compact. Therefore, that was physical proof, whether your signature was fancy or your signature was nothing more than an X, that was everybody witnessing you that you're going to follow the set of laws and rules that are set out in this particular document. Because of its success, it would set a precedent for future colonies. And no surprise that the very land that they were standing on, that compact would also set an example for the second, not first, attempt to govern the people that will eventually call themselves Americans. But the most important thing to come out of that Mayflower Compact was that the authority of that document was derived from the consent of those who were to be governed. I'm going to repeat that. The authority of the compact derived from the consent of those who were to be governed. The definition of that compact, no surprise, is also the definition of our form of government, a constitutional democracy. Our form of government is derived from us who will be governed by it. We select our president who will govern us at a federal level.
In each state, we will elect our governor who will govern us at our state level and the supporting houses as well, House of Representatives or legislature and the state government, and then, of course, our Senate, the federal Senate, the United States Senate, and then our, our uh, state senators. So within this, please note that this is what allowed the colonies as the years began to progress, as these early European settlers became more proficient in how to plant food and store food and be able to have enough to last the colony through the winter is what would lead us then briefly to our last part of this particular section in what we call colonial development. So while that document was setting the precedent, a, a contract on governing the colony, what did that actually look like? Well, first off, and no surprise, that the royal governor for all British colonies, the royal governor of the colony would not be selected by the people. It would be appointed by the crown. The King of England appointed the colonial governors. Remember, these colonies are for exploitation. Get in, get what we can get out of it, get out. The idea of staying here for the long haul initially is not on the minds of, these, of the royal families of Europe. It's not until they realize the awesomeness of the size of this new discovery will the idea of permanency begin to creep in. So initially, no surprise that the royal governor is going to be appointed by the crown. However, just like in England, where there is an upper house, the House of Lords, there would be an upper house also in the colonies. Those members would be appointed by the governor. The lower house, the House of Commons back in England equivalent, would be chosen by the colonists. So you see, we're getting that first taste of this idea of selecting our politicians here in the new world, which will eventually be the United States of America. But I'd like you to back up a moment as I just quickly say those three things again. The governor appointed by the crown, upper house appointed by the governor, lower house chosen by the colonists. There's not a whole heck of a lot of democracy there. But keep in mind, England is not a democracy at this point. She's a constitutional monarchy. And that's important distinction because the governor or the, the, the crown, the king or queen of England, they want to have a say as to who that governor is. Now, you really think when I when I point out that second group of people, that the first of the two group of people, the upper house appointed by the governor, you mean to tell me the kings or queen of England's not going to have some influence there? Hey, Jim, if I make you appoint you the governor of the such and such colony in the new world, what types of upper house members would you appoint? It is no different than a way our American presidents, before they decide to nominate a person for the United States Supreme Court, of course they ask litmus, to, litmus test questions. Of course they ask cornerstone type questions. If a case like this were to be brought in front of the court, oh, they're not going to be so bold and brazen as to say, how would you rule? But, or how would you decide? But don't kid yourself that they're not going to figure that out in a roundabout way by looking at that potential Supreme Court justices voting and decision history through the court system that they were involved up to that point. So again, no surprise again that these governors would be vetted by the crown. So really the idea that the colonists chose all of the government representatives, that's not true. The governor again was appointed by the King of England the upper house by the governor, of course, with a lot of influence from the king, 
only that lower house group would be chosen by the colonists. Who and are we talking about with voting here? Needless to say, you know, of course, it's only men. And in this land here, what will eventually be called the United States, is going to remain men for the next 300 years. 300 years. Yes, think about it. Think about that a future slave on this land, a future male slave, when given his freedom in 1865, by 1868 to 1870, the average white male American politician is more comfortable with a former male slave voting than he is his own white wife. Why? What about that? What, what, what's, what's, what does the woman have or possess that the average white male politician in the 1800s, some 200 years later, is still more concerned with a woman voting than he is a former male slave? More about that in later podcasts. So who was it that could vote in here? Well, again, we, we talked about Mal, but there were two others, point two. 21 years or older, they had to be, if legitimately proven of their age, they had to be 21 years or older. Notice that that's going to be the mainstay for who can vote in our future United States all the way until 19, the 1970s. Think about that. Even after the French Revolution in the early late 1700s into the early 1800s, even the French said, you know what, regardless of age, if you fought for the front in the French military, you're old enough to vote. Not in America. We did not lower the age of voting from 21 to 18 until well into the Vietnam War. Think about the irony or the hypocrisy, if you want to use that word of that. Think about that. Throughout most of the Vietnam War, all of the Korean War, World Wars II and one before that, of course. Think about it. At the age of 18, we Americans, the American government, of course, of which we make up the American government, we elect our politicians. The Americans were saying, hey, at 18 years old, you're old enough to hold a weapon. You're old enough to fire that weapon and you're old enough to kill on behalf of the United States to keep us Americans safe. So can you imagine that 18, 19, or 20-year-old saying, and who commits us to go into war? Well, the president does. And then the House, through the budget, keeps us in that war. Okay, so I can vote to influence then who our president is or our representatives are. Oh, no, no, you're not, you're not, you're not old enough for that. Yeah, you're too young to vote. So I'm old enough to kill, but I'm not old enough to vote. Okay, got that. I'll try to make sense of that as I'm roaming through the next battlefield. Right. But that is going to be the mainstay. 21 years old, all the way through to 1970, to the point that even at 18, which we still have today is the earliest age that you can vote. We are still not the country to possess the population of the youngest voters. If you're looking for that country and you want to pause the podcast here for just a moment to think about it, the country that has the youngest registered voters at the age of 15 is actually the country of Iran. Third criteria for voting eligibility, one male, two, 21 or older, and three, this also made the voting population even smaller yet, was that you also had to be debt-free. That's an important point. 21 or older male that also owns their land free and clear, because not only did you have to own land, you also had to have it free and clear. That, again, significantly reduced the population of who had the influence in the ballot box.
Now let's also look at this from another perspective. Cynical, perhaps. Realistic, how could it not be? Who really, in these early colonies, were influencing the political system? The true commoners? No. The people that were established? Yes. The moneyed class. Because if you owned land free and clear, you were the only one that was allowed to influence who the politicians were in office. So please keep that point in mind, because as we eventually form what we call our constitutional democracy, in that famous summer of 1787, we're going to find out that we really didn't deviate from that much at all. And that is, again, 200 years later. So last part then in this section is we're looking at these early uh, 1620s here. Is this is going to be, no surprise, the first of what we will call the laying the foundation of the modern day Thanksgiving holiday. The first one was believed to be in the fall of 1621, as the colonists were desperate to learn how to survive for yet another cold, brutal winter. When I say learn how to survive, learn from who? Yeah, internet wasn't exactly brought over from Europe just yet, so nobody's jumping on Google with any ideas or going through Wikipedia to figure out just how might we be able to survive between now and the next six months. So there's really only one group for these early colonists to learn from, and that, of course, was the Native Americans. So the Native American men finally turned to the natives. Are you kidding me? No. The early men of these colonies were the modern-day forerunners of the men that were too proud to ask for directions. Now, we'll just drive around, continue looking, being lost for hours rather than swallow the ego and pride and say, hey, excuse me, I'm lost and I need help here. So that's the reason why the first Thanksgiving largely was credited to the five remaining females in the Plymouth colony. The men churned up the best soil and planted the seeds ever so carefully, and half of them wouldn't even germinate. Yet they would look over at what the Native Americans planting their seeds in what looked like hard, rocky soil, and boom, practically every seed germinates. What's going on? The woman found out that the Native Americans didn't plant the seeds simply in the soil. They planted them in the bellies of dead fish, which of course immediately acted as a fertilizer and was a substance which held the moisture, allowing for the seed to germinate and then to grow. The females would learn a boatload of ideas from the Native Americans. Remember, too, that November is the end of the fall harvest. That's the reason why the early American Congresses constantly met starting in December when our Congress today largely takes off for the, the Christmas holiday, no, that's when their work would begin because the fall harvest was now done and the politicians could leave their plantations and farms, head into Washington, D.C. to carry out the order and the business of America. So the end of November, whatever could not be saved, whether it be through rubbing it with salt, whether it be getting it to an ice house or early modern day idea of refrigeration, which is an ad adaptation from the ice house, whatever food could not be crammed in to those ice houses or whichever could not be properly salted to keep, of course, the mold and rot from affecting the meats and other vegetables 
whatever was not eaten, whatever, excuse me, was not stored, of course, was eaten. And this would be the one time of year, which is the reason why America's largely first Thanksgiving was not simply a one day or one night event. It was roughly a week long as they largely gorged themselves with the wonderful feeling of being full, but also the uncertainty and anxiety which then set in when the last plate of food was empty. Because now they truly would have to calculate and recalculate exactly how much food they consumed as fall turned into winter. And then could they last not only through the winter and early spring, but they could they last into the next summer before plentiful food sources could be found again. So for all of us out there, yes, guys, we do thank the females for creating which would eventually be the forerunner of the modern day Thanksgiving holiday. Moving or fast forwarding several hundred years, several decades later, why eventually would our idea of the Thanksgiving holiday be celebrated on a Thursday? Well, duh, that gives us a four-day weekend and that gives us a Black Friday. Hello out there. No, of course, that's not the reason. Think about it, though. Why not have, I mean, imagine, or we know what Thanksgiving is like. I mean, you talk about the day when we have the meal of all meals, when we'll have generally one massive source of meat, whether it be turkey or a ham, or in some cases, some households, both of those, or even more endless source of vegetables and side dishes, and then the desserts get paraded out. Why do we do that on a Thursday? Why wouldn't the Lincoln administration have made it on a Sunday? It's the most common sense day to choose. Go back to the first law of this land, long before the United States was the United States. The first law was of religious toleration. If Abraham Lincoln made that American national holiday on Sunday, could it be seen as a nod towards Roman Catholicism and Christianity, which celebrates that day, Sunday, as a holy day? Nope. Don't want to go there. We don't want to link this federal holiday, national holiday, to a religious holiday or a religious day of note. So Sunday is out. Well, what's the one before that then? Saturday. Sorry. The Jewish population, that's their day. What about before that, Friday? Now you've got the world of Islam. Not that there was a massive population there, but it clearly was known that Friday is their holy day. So Thursday was the closest day within the week towards the weekend when the Thanksgiving holiday could be established as a federal holiday without being accused of being linked to any major religion of the world at the time. It would be in 1863, after his famous address at Gettysburg, which was no more than a minute and a half long, when he would declare it a holiday in Thanksgiving for the fact that we are still independent, still in this war, and still have a chance of reconnecting with our Southern counterpart, the Confederate States of America. The onset of the Thanksgiving into the 20th century, football, no surprise if there's any role that we have in this man, it would be Thanksgiving, uh, bring, bringing popular, uh, football, uh, increasing the popularity of Thanksgiving into the 20th century. We are just a few years away from the 100th anniversary, if the department store that we know of as Macy's can survive the continually downturn in the retail economy due to the impact of the internet, the first Macy's parade would be held in 1924, and it is still largely one of the least commercialized holidays 
in America. Every president since Franklin Delano Roosevelt, some argue that it was his successor, Harry Truman, that actually had the idea of, quote unquote, pardoning one turkey. However, not every president was willing to make that a part of their presidency. There was one particular president long after Harry Truman or Franklin Roosevelt that largely had wanted nothing to do with touching these gamely looking birds. In fact, after his first year in office, in his first year in office, this American president, upon looking at his fall calendar, saw the pardoning of the turkey on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving or the Tuesday of Thanksgiving week and said, we can scratch that event from my calendar for as long as I am president. Yes, Mr. President. But wait a minute, you say, Chris, there's always been a pardoning of uh, Thanksgiving turkey with no exceptions. Exactly. Because this president's wife found out about the cancellation of this event and insisted that it be turned that it be reinstated into his calendar and by the way she didn't have the conversation with her husband the president she simply told the staff to put that back on the calendar and the staff relented without checking with the president and the president reluctantly continued with the tradition so if you're guessing which president this is that would be none other than president george hw bush Finally, a last bit of a little bit of trivia here is as we enjoy our Thanksgiving dinner, and we also perhaps don't enjoy the food bill prior to that Thanksgiving dinner, you, for the most part, if you're in one of these states, you can be thankful of not having the most expensive Thanksgiving dinner to be offered. That largely goes to Hawaii as being the most uh, the state with the most expensive Thanksgiving dinner, followed by Alaska. Thank you.